You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Hello. Hope your weekend's going well. Welcome to the podcast if you've downloaded it. I make no apologies for entreating you to have a look at the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's a lot of supplementary stuff and the full schedule for the weekend. Uh, but just while I've got your attention and you're listening, tomorrow night I'm going to be talking with a cat called Leo Igwe. He's had a bit of difficulty getting to New Zealand. No, he's not a Lauren Southerner <laughs> or a Stefan Molyneux. My major problem with Molyneux is just so bloody smug. I was, was going to get a banner and go and protest. Molyneux, I think you're just a little bit smug. That would be my big protest. Okay, uh, Leo Igwe, on to subject. Tomorrow night, he'll be on around about the 9.30 mark. He's well worth a listen. Try this for a job or an activity, a cause. Uh, he lives in Nigeria and he is works very hard against superstitions and damaging religions, Christian, Islam, whatever. A witch is killed in Nigeria apparently every day. He's got some horrific stories. But you just think, have a, go out and try it. You've got Boko Haram on your back door and he, he's fighting them. And he has, yes, he's suffered consequences. He ain't been killed, but it's been close. He's got some stories and a half. Leo Igwe, don't miss him. He's going to be on tomorrow night, 9.30. I think the word brave is very, very apt. And along those lines, a colleague of his, Andrew Copson, is the chief executive of Humanists in the UK for humanist rights, secular values, and a critic of religions getting special treatment. Not even treatment, special favoured treatment. He will be on later this hour. And next up, the world of human statistics. What is really meant? What do people think when something is said to be natural? Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The world of human statistics, what we really think uh, when people are asked en masse various questions. They're all collated by an outfit called Ipsos. Research Director Jonathan Dodd with some interesting stuff as always. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, g'day, Graham. I'm fascinated with this because it's kind of a bit of a bugbear of mine and it'll be interesting <laughs> to find out. When people use the word natural, usually in a marketing sense, in, yep. in, a, in a cynical marketing ex, uh, extent sometimes too because cyanide is natural. Um, yep, <laughs> natural. Yeah. Uh, plastic bags are natural. It's, it's just oil. You know, plastic bags are made from trees. They're natural. Well, I suppose so. Plastic bags. Cancer's natural. <laughs> Anthrax and smallpox. So, yep. what does it natural mean when it comes to natural food? 14,000 well, people, 28 countries. Yep, and that's the thing. And when we ask them, I mean, right up front, they say having no artificial ingredients. So 52% of people said that. But... 
What's really interesting too, I think, is when you actually have to consider even what's natural because I've, I've read a really interesting book recently, I don't know if you've heard of it, called The Dorito Effect. No. And it's all about the growth of the artificial flavouring industry, which is basically about 50, 60 years old. And there are people out there who work like perfumer. Was it perfumers? You know, the people who make perfume? Yep. They're, they're like that. But just the way you mix your whiskey or your wine, there are people that sit there and mix chemicals. And, you know, flavours like vanilla actually these days come from pine trees and kerosene and things like this. It's, and coal tar makes an amazing smell. You know, it's, it's quite incredible that um, you can have a manufacturer that actually say it's not artificial which is true because it's naturally derived, but it can still be pretty heinous if you should show where it comes from. So, yeah, natural is not artificial ingredients. So I want to have um, all my stuff to be naturally derived, but, yeah, that, that's a question mark because I don't think how many people... Well, the biggest really question mark comes at the end of... Natural. The biggest question mark comes at the end of what does artificial mean then? Well, that's what I mean, yeah. Mm. So you, do you want to have... And as we know that sometimes what is... Um, People will say, I want it to be healthy, because healthy is one of the big things there too. 43% of people said that if something was natural, it was healthy, mm. just like anthrax, which you mentioned. And we know that sugar is actually healthier than artificial sweetener. You know, artificial sweetener actually plays havoc with your hormone system and how your body regulates stuff. So sugar is just, it's absolutely fine. It's just how much of it you have, of course. Um and then you have 44% of people said, yeah, it's got to be at 100% from nature. So, yep, as long as things are all natural. But as you said, what is natural? What is artificial? And sometimes the artificial stuff might look good if it's calorie reduction, but not necessarily. Um, it, it's a funny one. Yeah, um, it'd be pretty hard to make an argument that somebody couldn't put natural on almost anything. Well, everything color. I guess it comes down to whether it's naturally occurring in the world, and everything is. Yeah, well, this is everything except for polonium. I think that's it. That's the one. Yeah, you know, uranium's natural. Um, we're being cynical here, of course, but that's yeah. our job to look under it and think about it. And as you say, it's often because the word natural is used very heavily in marketing, so therefore it often gets abused, or we think about it in the wrong way. And then, so that's where the citizen comes through, I think. So what was also interesting here was that they said um, it can't be mass-produced. So mass-produced can't be natural, So, which is weird if you want to talk to, you know, some pretty major businesses around the world Mm. that do make really natural good stuff. But just there's, there's some point where it's like, Oh, you're making it in such great numbers. You must be doing something, something bad. You know, you're a factory now. You're not a, a home-based artisan. So you start looking at these things, and it's really strong with young people. Those aged under five more likely to cite organic, um, or locally and ethically sourced. So, so as long as you're paying people a fair wage and it's locally produced, that will go some way towards something being natural, mm. even if, I don't know, you can you have a, a naturally, ethically produced artificial chemical? So <laughs> it's an interesting one that, yeah, but this is a young person thing. They get into, is it organic? Is it ethical? Is it morally correct? Whereas those aged 50 and over, they're just going, well... Shouldn't have artificial ingredients and extra processing. Right, right. Yeah. And some interesting uh, national differences. 
Yeah, and, and this is, again, I love it when you see these things because you see cultural differences come to the fore. We should talk about culture in a minute too. Um, Germans want more likely to talk about sustainability. And we know that Germany is in some of those countries are way ahead of us, for example, when it comes to um, recycling and you know economic and um, environmental pressures and stuff. They've just got a lot more people per per kilometre, and, and they've got to think about it a lot more, a lot more strictly. So, there is sustainability. Um, Saudis, Peruvians, and Hungarians are more likely to say that it's allergen-free. I don't huh. know why that is. Yep, yep. Try to look at what they've got in common. Yeah. And there's there's not much. They've got A's in their name. Um, but then, this is interesting too, if you remember last week when we spoke about human rights, um, Chinese and Serbs, both of whom, of course, have um, had questionable human rights ethics and labour laws and all the rest of it, they're more likely to talk about being ethically produced. Ah, okay. Yeah. E- ethically animal rights, human rights. Uh, I imagine, from what I know, and I've seen from Chinese, they're more focused on uh, human rights. Yeah, I'm not sure about Serbians too, but often in countries where human rights have been really trampled and there's poor background, the animal rights are even further down the totem pole because you know it's it's hard enough to look after your own life, let alone worrying about the animals around you. Yeah. It's, okay. It's, which, yeah. Okay, let's talk about culture and what that means. Yeah, and this actually. It, it's not strictly a cognitive bias, but it is in a way. And this arose from a conversation at work the other day when we're talking we're talking about how a lot of marketing these days focuses on the New Zealand culture or they look at they use a lot of cultural riffs like um, you know, the, the Cherbro thing being Kiwi, Maori, that Maori Renaissance and stuff like this. Retro chic, you know, L and P and you know, look at all those brands. And we have to bear in mind that um, what is uh, what is normal, what you think is normal around you, what you think is the done way around you, what you think is natural, the done way, um, common sense, the way things are done, all these things that we take for granted around us, that's entirely the creation of social behaviours of people because what we do and think is influenced by the group we live in. If we're going to have to live with other people harmoniously, we unconsciously and sometimes consciously end up just living in a certain certain way, um, and sometimes the way it is is you know it, it's enforced by law. So if you do you know, do something wrong, the police will come at you. Sometimes it's just social. You won't find a uh, a wall that says you can't walk um, you can't walk around the place cross dressed, for example. But if you cross dress in some workplaces, it'll be looked at funny. Um, there's a whole lot of sort of behaviours that people will uh, will look at you funny for doing. There won't be a law against it, but it's a social thing. Yeah. And, and the, the thing about this is we're seeing more and more of this, these problems occurring in New Zealand. And even just this week, you know, we've got these old white people coming along to chat because they're, they're trying to talk about something which is not politically acceptable or socially acceptable for a large chunk of New Zealanders. And so you see that they are, people try to either formally say they can't talk and take away their venue or they're going to be socially maligned and all the rest of it. And you see how people that are saying something that is um, not really illegal, but it's distasteful for a lot of us and how they get slammed for it. Have you heard much of yeah. what Lauren Southern's had to say? No, honestly. Right. 
Yeah, well, I, t I don't mean to put you on the spot. I mean to put everybody on the spot, actually. It's all right. Yeah, it's just, right. it's weird. Yeah, anyway. Well, I don't I particularly like them, but, of, yeah. There's a lot of hypocrisy when you look at how the liberal left, you know, generally part of that, espouse free, free speech, freedom, libertarianism, everybody has freedom so you can love who you love and marry who you want to marry and yeah. have all this freedom. But that doesn't extend to freedom of political opinion if it's not, you know, if it's too far to one direction. Yeah. And of course, it is a slippery slope from being extreme to genuine, nasty hate, hate speech. Yeah. And where you cross that line is subjective, and hence we get this issue. But it's something I think listeners should think about because it's a real big thing in New Zealand, particularly in Auckland, and we see this in marketing where we see classical Kiwi brands having less traction in Auckland because Auckland is where we have the largest concentration of new New Zealanders. Yeah, yeah. L&P means nothing. Well, if you weren't living in New Zealand in the 70s yeah. where everybody's wearing stubbies, so you, we, it's... it's interesting thing we do see a lot of the time these days we've got classic Kiwi brands and it might be anything from a Swan Dry to Vogels to something like that um, and we know they're fantastic heritage brands but yeah. if, you're, if you're off the boat for five years from China yeah. or the UK or Australia it doesn't mean anything to you. No and it means our culture isn't static and neither, neither should it be. Um, no. new, new classics and traditions will evolve and that's good. Well, I think now that the Lansing Festival in Auckland is a really big thing on the calendar, along with Polyfest, those yeah. are all really good examples. Makes the place a richer area. Yeah. Yeah. But, good one. I um, should start doing things our way and take your New Zealand, New Zealand culture. I think, well, if you, you found yourself, say, a job, a job put you in working in South Africa in 1978, would you immediately become racist? Mm. We like to think we wouldn't. So when people come from other countries, New Zealand, mm. you can't expect them to automatically dress or, or act differently. No, um, we sh then, and that's a, a good reason why we should identify some core values that we should all agree on. Oh, but well, you can't do that. You can agree to live with people who have different values if they don't tread on your own values too much. But do you remember um, a number of years ago, one of the Aussie Prime Ministers tried to enshrine mateship into some Australian constitution. Mm. About, and it raised the whole hornet's nest about what is mateship because, of course, do you dob in your mates? If someone wants to like, throw my gay mate off a building, I'm going to say no. Yep. Well, but would you... There's a core yes, value. We can start with that. <laughs> And this is the thing, but if you know your mate is, is um, dodging his tax, do you promote mateship and let him get away with it, or do you promote the law and dob him in? Yeah. And I think that's where it all became unstuck, of course, because you've got these differing values up against each other. Right. But it's all relative. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan Dodd. And uh, coming up next, we're going to hear from Andrew Copson of UK Humanist. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. A humanist conference is happening in Auckland, or has happened in Auckland, depending on when you're listening to this. What on earth is a humanist and what do they do? Andrew Copson, a very, very well-known humanist, chief executive of Humanist UK, welcome to New Zealand. Thanks, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Words get confusing, and people don't know exactly what they mean. Humanism, it doesn't clearly say what it is on the bottle, does it? 
Yeah, well, the word humanism has been used for the last sort of couple of hundred years in English to describe someone who's not religious. And instead of looking sort of beyond this world, beyond this life for answers in gods or some sort of supernatural beings, roots their morality, their view of the meaning and purpose of life in the here and now. So no life after death, no tablets of stone telling you what to do. You've got to find your own moral compass in this life with the resources that humanity has at its disposal. You've got to make your own meaning um, individually and together in life and find what's true and what's real by observation and experience rather than by authority and religion and so on and so forth. So that's sort of in a relatively large nutshell what the word humanism means today. Is it in part because atheist holds some sort of stigma even in the world today? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's just a different word. So obviously atheism just describes a, a lack of belief about the existence of gods and goddesses and so on, mm. whereas the word humanism describes a wider set of attitudes, of beliefs and values that make up a sort of coherent worldview, I suppose, or approach to life. All right. Were you ever religious? No, no, I wasn't, no. Like a lot of people in the UK, I mean, the UK figures on the religiosity of the population are quite similar to New Zealand. So it's quite a non-religious society. And my parents and my grandparents, my great-grandparents, in fact, uh, none of them were religious. So no, I wasn't either. I did badger my mum to let me go to Sunday school when I was little um, because one of my friends was going there. Um, but I didn't. it didn't really succeed with me. Uh, one of the arguments, what's the harm? Why are you animated about this? One of the reasons to, I think, get involved in humanist organisations and talk about humanist values and beliefs is that a lot of non-religious people can, if they've come from religious backgrounds, often feel that they don't have the language to talk about their values, to talk about their beliefs. Um, they might feel sort of that, uh, especially when it comes to raising their own children, that they don't have the resources to talk about, you know, how they approach life. Um, and I think that organising into humanist organisations, producing resources about that for schools and for parents and help guide people's own thinking like humanist organizations do all around the world is a pretty good thing a lot of humanist organizations of course also engage in debates with religious people about religious matters either you know whether religions are true or not or on the political stage um how states and governments and public laws and authorities should treat religion and other sorts of belief and there's a lot of religious privilege in the world today um, obviously, at one end of the at extreme end of the spectrum, there are countries where you can be uh, imprisoned and executed for not being religious. Even in very non-religious societies like New Zealand or the UK, there are still examples of religious privilege. So often in the school system, there'll be prayers. I don't know exactly what the situation is in New Zealand, but in the UK, they're compulsory every day in all state schools. Um, there are uh, religious aspects to Parliament in the UK, so... Uh, churching and bishops sitting in parliament voting on laws um, just because they're from the established church. So there is, uh, there's a sort of activism that humanist organisations engage in where religion damages public life or has privilege or leads to discrimination. And then, of course, in some other countries um, where um, there's uh, less of a political problem but more of a social argument, humanist organisations um, get involved in public debates about or not a religion per se because they generally think um, that it's good for beliefs to be exposed to scrutiny, debate, critical examination, yeah. um, and of course humanists think that they're correct, just like religious people think that they're correct, and so they want to engage in debate on these terms. The strange case of Britain compared to the United States, um, the United States constitutionally has a separation, yeah. and Britain has constitutionally religion embedded since 
Henry VIII, and yet the religiosity is vastly different. It's actually, I mean, the US and the UK are two extremely good examples to compare because the US has probably the most secular constitution in the world. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the UK has, outside of the Islamic world, one of the most religious constitutions uh, in the world. Like you say, the societies in those two countries are the precise opposite of the political arrangement. So I'm sure that the US has the biggest disparity between a religious society and a non-religious constitution. And I'm sure that the UK has the biggest disparity the other way around. Probably in the world, those two countries in the world have the biggest mismatches mm. between their state and their people. How has that happened? Well, American secularism has always been about trying to create the space for people to have freedom of religion. You know, religious liberty, uh, freedom of religious conscience has always been one of the more important motivating factors behind America's secular constitution. So the idea was not to protect people from religion, but to protect religion from government, really. In the UK, church establishment over time has changed. So it's been many centuries since uh, the Church of England attempted to impose its will on everybody. For some time now, it's accepted that Britain is a, a diverse society. And it's sort of reached a series of accommodations to retain its political power by sort of easing ground socially um, and morally. So I think that in the UK, what the church has done is been quite pragmatic to keep popular support for its privileges by not making too much of a big fuss about its actual beliefs. Yes, I personally found that uh, many Anglicans, it's it's pretty hard to distinguish uh, some of their uh, stated beliefs, even the clergy, um, to, to pair it away from what sounds a lot like agnostic atheism. Even... Yeah, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that, that's exactly right. And then you could ask a progressive Jew, and um, I think you are talking to an atheist about nine times out of ten. The, yeah. The problem with privilege being given to a religion, it means other religions can say, hey, what about us? You're playing favourites. There's the problem with a non-secular outlook. Yes, exactly. I mean, so people often say, you know, oh, if if, if Denmark wants to keep its established church or if the UK wants to keep its established church um, or if, you know, uh, Norway wants to keep its established church, what's the problem? Well, one of the problems is that in today's world, especially in democratic countries, if you give privilege to one religion, then you end up getting demands from every religion. So instead of having a situation like in France or the United States where religious organisations are treated equally in an unprivileged way, you get in the UK today calls from religious organisations to have equal privilege with the church, to have state-funded schools, to have representatives in Parliament, to have public services contracted out to them. Um, and, of course, that leads very quickly to social division, racial division, ethnic division, religious division. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's happening, for example, now in, in the UK in, in terms of state schools. You know, there's a growing number of uh, state-funded religious schools given to other religions on the grounds that the churches already have them, so it's only fair. And what that leads to, of course, is division and, and uh, really a, a lack of social cohesion for the future, which is very funny. How much taxpayer money is actually spent at religious level then? What kind of privilege, financial privilege, are they accorded? All religions. In, in England, the third of all state schools are religious and they are 100% funded by the state. So it's a pretty substantial level of, um, of public money. There's additional public money spent, of course, on mm. 
Church of England chaplains in prisons and hospitals and other public institutions where um, it's, in the case of prisons, you know, mostly or completely uh, Church of England chaplains. Um, but schools is really the biggest area of public expenditure. And, and like I say, that's a third of the whole school system. Yeah, it would be a hard thing to turn around, though, with these established institutions doing a lot of education, secular education as well as, I don't know, uh, a, a few hours on a, on a Friday or the boarding school preaching. I don't know. Yeah, it is hard to turn around. I mean, we, we've always advocated in Humanist UK for the last 125 years. We've always advocated that, that what should happen should be slow adjustments and reforms and regulation of those schools. You know, a sudden revolution overnight is completely implausible. And in fact, there has been slow, increasing regulation of those schools. So, for example, um, they used to be allowed to select, you know, all their pupils on religious grounds. You know, no worries. They could have interviews to determine the, whether the parents were of the right religion and all the rest of it. And that's been narrowed down much more in recent years, in the last 20 years, so that they can no longer interview parents. They have to have objective tests for um, the children uh, coming in. In some schools, religious selection has been limited to 50% of places. Gradual change in the right direction is, is the right strategy, and that's certainly what um, we promote, Humans UK and Humans International. All right, let's get to the obvious, bristling, angry, nervous front in this argument. Unfortunately, in Britain and a lot of uh, the Western world is confronting objections from Islam. Not Hinduism, not Sikhism, not Jainism, not Zoroastrianism. Um, I've picked those because confronting and criticising Islam is so often, from some sectors, called racist. How? Yeah, you're right. Almost all of the religious governments of the world today are Muslim ones. Um, the theocracies uh, um, in, the, in the Arab world and, and growing religious extremism in Southeast Asia, places like Malaysia and Indonesia, and that is all coming uh, from an Islamic direction. And there is additional uh, concern and debate and activity um, around immigration of Muslims into Europe and other uh, style Western countries. Now, I think that one of the problems there is in countries where there are established churches, as we were saying a moment ago. So there's a legitimate expectation by Muslim community groups in the UK, for example, but in other Western countries too, that they should receive the same sort of institutional support and privilege and funding that churches get. And in a situation where one doesn't want discrimination against uh, one person or another on the basis of their religion, they have a strong case. Now, for me, of course, the answer is to get rid of the Christian privilege rather than to start privileging everybody. Um, but I think that uh, a lot of churches defend their privilege to the extent that they would, are happy to see Muslim groups and other religious groups receive the same benefits and entitlements that they do. Um, like Christianity, Islam is a monotheistic uh, religion that makes exclusive truth claims um, about their one God being true. And that has obviously led to big rows about free speech. But I think um, in terms of the resurrection of discussions about blasphemy in the Western world today have been almost all uh, concerned with religious and uh, cause to Muslims. And that raises very difficult questions for uh, secular liberals uh, in a democratic world. But at the same time as they don't want to see ethnic minorities 
targeted by hate mongers and the far right also want to defend the principle of free speech that would mean that people should be allowed to criticize religion. Um, so there are a whole new range of sensitivities. It's very difficult to see how you can resolve them without a secular and humanist approach, because I think the old approaches of religious establishment and religious privilege don't work in this new context. So how much intolerance do people tolerate, though? Yeah. When you're talking about freedom of religions, I don't mind saying this, I don't want to see a religion or at least an ideology within that religion, hashtag not all, impinge on the hard-fought, long battle for women's rights, gays' rights, other religious rights, atheist rights, freedom of speech rights, to be able to draw a cartoon of whatever you like rights without being killed somehow. Yes, well, that's exactly right. And I think that the only way to make sure that those freedoms are defended is to constantly assert and to, you know, to never give any ground to those people who uh, want to try and recriminalise that sort of expression or want to try and intimidate people who are going about their personally lawful activities. And I think that states and governments and public authorities can be a lot more robust in protecting the rights of women, in making sure that every woman in the UK, for example, is aware of her, her rights in every respect. So we've had some problems in the, in the UK of uh, Muslim women who've gone through religious marriage ceremonies, uh, believing that they had all the rights of legal marriages, but in fact they didn't because they hadn't gone through civil marriages. And it could be very unfairly and equally treated um, by their husbands, especially in matters of divorce. Now, I think that the state and public authorities could be a lot more activist in safeguarding the rights of women, the rights of children, Okay, but people are walking on eggshells these days to the extent of uh, so afraid to be labelled racists that these things are not being called up. I must mention, uh, it is no secret, and yet the hideous fact that it was for a long, long time, rape grooming gangs, raping gangs in Telford and Rotherham, and this is in the public domain, People did not call them up on it because they were afraid to be labelled racist. Yes, I mean, that's right. And the same happened in North London as well with um, very extreme Jewish schools yeah. um, that were denying their children, you know, education in anything. You know, they weren't even teaching them English and for the same sort of reason, because they didn't want to think. Firstly, they might not want to be called racist themselves, but also they didn't want to risk stirring up racial hatred which, you know, I think is a, a more legitimate concern. It's still something that doesn't justify not talking no. up about. Yeah, and I think that it is a risk because um, you do have, um, especially in the form of, of Muslims, of course, um, a minority in better countries, and a small minority too, I mean, less than 5% in the UK, for example, people are Muslims, right? A minority that does suffer um, from severe discrimination and hatred. Um, in all sorts of ways, um, still. At the same time, the, the liberal dilemma that I referred to earlier, at the same time, um, you have people within those uh, Muslim communities who are obviously violating the human rights of women, uh, violating the human rights of children, violating the human rights of people who want to leave their religion, and violating the human rights of LGBT people too. So there is that dilemma. How do you tackle the severe growing structural infringements of people's human rights at the same time stirring up racial and religious hatred against 
a group of people, most of whom are not engaging mm. in these violations of mm. human rights. And I think it's very, very hard. I think the one you can do is the way that humanist organisations around the world, I know, um, all do it, is that you use the framework of human rights to address these issues. So you say, yes, people have the right to their freedom of religion and belief, but that right to you know, live out their religious beliefs is only true to the limits of the rights of others. So if it starts infringing the rights of women, if it starts infringing other people's rights uh, to freedom of speech, um, and that, that right, you know, falls falls away. No, it no longer operates if you're getting interfering with the rights of freedom as well. Now, in the UK, there's a big disadvantage in trying to deal with this because we don't have any sort of written constitution. What you would want to be able to do would be when if they think that a right is being infringed, say the right to freedom of religion or belief, and they can go to the Constitutional Court and they can say, listen, you know, this is this is my protected right. It's being infringed in this way. And there's a framework there that allows both citizens and government to make difficult decisions. But what it definitely requires from all of us in civil society, not just in terms of law and policy, is bravery to be able to continue to stand up for the sorts of universal values that, as you say, people have fought and died for in previous decades. Um, and I do think that politicians should be braver in standing up for the human rights of, of women and others who uh, find themselves oppressed by religious beliefs in, in Western societies today. Something that appalls me as well, the willful stigmatisation of fellow humanists. I could mention Douglas Murray, Majid Nawaz. I don't know if he's a humanist, but anyway, Ayan Hirsi yeah, Ali. Yeah, yeah. Ayan Hirsi Ali. Yeah. Um, People I know actually feel like they shouldn't like them, yet haven't heard, obviously, their arguments. And this is a result of stigmatisation, willful stigmatisation, to the extent where the Southern Poverty Law, whatever it is, centre, called most of those people I just mentioned, if not all of them, anti-Islamic extremists. Yeah. This is part of the same confusion we were talking about a moment ago, isn't it? The the, the idea that if you criticise social conventions or religious beliefs that attach to people, mainly of a particular ethnicity, that that is immediately um, can be categorised as racism. Well, I think that that's something that we all really just have to grow up and get over, because obviously it is the case that there are racists in the world, but it is not racist to stand up, for example, for the human rights of children um, if the cause of the violation of their human rights is religion. And there is an increased reluctance to stand up for the human rights of non-white people because you will thereby be criticising other non-white people and you might accidentally be uh, accused of racism or stimulate racism. So, you know, I think that that does need to be dealt with. But, you know, we have to recognise also, obviously, there are racists. I mean, there are people um, who say that they're targeting Muslim beliefs and uh, Muslim violations of human rights when in fact they're targeting Muslims and they're racist. It is difficult to distinguish often between those two. I mean, you're right. The mischaracterization, the complete and outrageous mischaracterization of Majid in particular um, as being somehow, uh, <laughs> you know, a proponent of racial hatred was, was pretty egregious. And, and it is increasingly happening. I think it does lead to self-censorship. By yes. some people who don't want to be similarly accused of being uh, racist, and so I do think that, in the same way as you're saying there, we all have a duty when we when we see that sort of mischaracterisation to to point it out and call it out. But otherwise, it's difficult to know what you can do. I mean, 
if you like, when you identify a social problem, which is what you're identifying, really, you're saying if there is a problem today, people are maybe less willing to call out human rights abuses and because they're worried about being called racist. And there are other people who are wrongly calling people racist um, who do that sort of work. Well, that's a social problem, I mean, which, which we have to confront with with social solutions, don't we? Because you can't make a law against people calling other people racist. That's not, you know, that's an escalation of anti-free speech which is going to take us nowhere very productive. Yeah, but it, it just seems so willful. It seems so willful to me, though. It, 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 it's, it's clearly obvious that they're not. So what the hell's going on? I mean, I think there is a lot of ignorance, actually. I, I think that it, it may sometimes be willful, but often when I've engaged in conversation with people who've made what I consider false claims of... Uh, intolerance or racism against people who are actually human rights defenders. I found that you know, a lot of people are amenable to convincing. What often convinces them, of course, is when you can point out people from within those same communities who are making this argument. Yeah. So if there's a, a, a white man in the UK who was previously a member of a national organisation who starts calling out human rights abuses by Muslims, okay, you can understand why some people think, hold on a minute. Now, I find that if you say, no, let's not listen to that person, let's listen to this young woman from Pakistan who faces these terrible barriers of religion yeah. and it needs your help in order to do this, then I find that people are a lot more amenable. I mean, that's one of the benefits, of course, of humanists working internationally. One of the most amazing board members um, that we have at the moment is a young woman called Gulalai who runs women's education programs in Pakistan. And when... When people of the Southern Poverty Law Centre or whoever else uh, makes these sorts of wrongful allegations of racism against human, human, you know, human rights defenders, when they come up against someone like Gulilov, it's much harder for them to make false allegations, but also I think it can help dispel some of their prejudices about people who are criticising religion. Yeah. My heart really sinks for those people caught in these theocratic societies. They get yeah. the opportunity to move to a country like Britain, where they have, are accorded rights, maybe looking forward to that freedom, they go there and then find that some sort of weird blind spot yeah. in the liberal outlook means they are stuffed again. Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot. Increasing numbers of people who come to Humanist UK are facing that, that dilemma. And, and often through the asylum system as well, right? So yeah. um, they come maybe fleeing, fleeing religious persecution and end up in the uh, asylum system. And then they end up with the only NGOs they can get help from or the only places they can go sort of stuffed full of really conservative religious people who are then policing their behaviour in the yeah. same way. Yeah. Um, and we've had yeah, a couple of cases of people who've been in refugee camps coming from Syria or elsewhere who, because they're not Muslim, you know, they haven't fasted during Ramadan, right? And, of course, that's instantly marked them out. They've been subject to, you know, persecution, to violence. Um, and it's like you say, people who are fleeing religious persecution then can end up in a, like you say, uh, a situation where liberals with a blind spot see those people only through the filter of their ethnicity or their religion or their race and, and bunch them together with the very people who are their oppressors. And I think that is uh, a big problem. Yeah. And I think humanists who are liberals who are trying to deal with that blind spot rather than uh, be the victims of, of it and have a big job of work to do in trying to reorient understandings of 
wider understandings of liberalism in particular, that it's not about groups, it's not about communities, it's not, you know, you don't, the unit of society that liberals should be interested in, the humanists are interested in, is not the community or the group or the tribe or the ethnicity, but the individual with their rights, their right to freedom of conscience, their right to change their religion, their right to leave their religion, their right to speak their mind. Um, and that's really, really should be the unit of our political activism as a humanist, it certainly is. Now, I strongly suspect something, but I, I can't prove it. The level of opprobrium accorded to atheists by theocracies especially, it, it hints to me of a sort of defensiveness that they actually know that, that, that the atheists might be right. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think that's very, that's, that's very true. Um, because why else would you want to keep people ignorant unless you realise that your own position was based on, on, on confusion um, and false information? Yeah, it reeks of insecurity. Okay, very good. Andrew Copson, Chief Executive of Humanist UK. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Cheerio. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, all. Uh, if you haven't heard already, Grant Smithies is away for a few weeks and I'm using this opportunity to uh, relayer the archive of the Shipwreck Tales. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. Oh, there's some gruesome stuff therein. Ugh. Um, a whole lot got jettisoned or lost, I think is the technical term, uh, in transferring from one web format thingy to another, and it's been grating me. The easiest, most efficient way to do it is to play them. Uh, between 11 o'clock and 12 of a Saturday for the next few weeks, we will be refilling up the archive. It's unlikely you've heard these tales in a while because the easiest way to listen to them uh, up till, well, always has been on the archive on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Do have a look. There are archives for all sorts of stuff. But we're having a look at the Cospatrick uh, this hour. Sorry, uh, tonight after 11 o'clock. And it is one hell of a grim tale. Up to this point, they've been putting the bodies over the side, but eventually the decision is taken by unanimous agreement that they, they really just have to start living off the dead. And so a couple of couple of the bodies are butchered and uh, they get what fluid they can from the bodies as well. They drink their blood, basically. But they drink their blood. And, of course, the blood doesn't flow in a dead body, so they need to create... They need to cut the, the dead flesh and then suck on it to, to get fluid out. On another thing that is um, that has changed since we put up the schedule for the Week of Variety Wireless this weekend, um, MTS Shams, he's a cracking interview. I uh, spoke with him. Oh, spoke with him on Friday, um, and recorded the interview. It was going to be him and Leo Igwe. They are, are brave people. Go have a look at uh, their work on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. MTS uh, has been shunted till next week. Because Leo Igwe really, really rocks. He's um, a brave person indeed. Fighting just horrendous religious practices and superstitions in Nigeria. And he's copped hell for a lot of it, as you can imagine. You know, Boko Haram's on his back door. 
go out and try it. I think these people should be recognised and saluted. It's pretty selfless stuff. OK, uh, that'll be tomorrow night, Leo Igway, after 9.30, but no uh, MTS Shams until next week. Uh, just in case you missed it, I'm, I would like you to hear this again. Um, well, hear it for the first time if you've missed it. Arthur C. Clarke from 1974. What a thing. Uh, he's been pretty good at predicting stuff. Myself and Sean Hendy did this thing on uh, earlier on. Uh, if you missed it, on predictions of science fiction that have and haven't come true. Arthur is a pretty... He's got some pretty good gets, ticket, ticks, for being able to predict, predict the future. This from 1974. Take a listen. Arthur C. Clarke. With that movie, 2001, you're projecting us into the 21st century. I brought along my son, Jonathan, who in the year 2001 will be the same age as I am now. Maybe he will be better adjusted to this kind of world that you're trying to portray. The big difference when he grows up, in fact, if we wanted to wait for the year 2001, is that he will have in his own house, not a computer as big as this, but at least a console through which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information he needs for his everyday life, like his bank statements, his theater reservations, all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. He'll have a television screen like these here and a keyboard and he'll talk to the computer get information from it and he'll take it as much for granted as we take the telephone. I wonder though what sort of a life would it be like in social terms? I mean, if our whole life is built around the computer, do we become a computer-dependent society and a computer-independent individual? What a clever clogs, Mr. Arthur C. Clarke. Take a bow, he's dead. OK, uh, shipwreck tale, the Cospatrick with John McChrystal after New Sport and Weather. It's 11 o'clock.